Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. This morning's scripture comes from book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 14 through 30. Now they had forgotten to bring, to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent them to and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we have now come to a very substantial moment in the story, the Gospel of Mark. We have been in the Gospel of Mark since Easter, and we are now uh, really at the midpoint. As I suggested a couple weeks ago, Mark's Gospel is uh, kind of built with a hinge right in the middle. And today's passage is that hinge. So the Gospel of Mark, as we've gone through it, we have noted it is considering and and pressing upon us two primary questions. First, who is Jesus? And second, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And here, in a very unique and cataclysmic way, those two questions converge and we get an answer to both as we recognize for the first time the disciples' awareness of who Jesus is. Thematically, this connects the Gospel of Mark with the very first verse. Mark's thesis statement was, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Gospel has proceeded to establish that verse, that this is the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And here, basically at the midpoint of the gospel, we come to the word the Christ for the first time spoken by the disciples. This is the monumental moment of recognition 
where that first part of Mark's thesis, that Jesus is the Christ, is brought out into the open. And incidentally, the Son of God is confessed in Mark 15, 39, the very moment that Jesus expires on the cross, where the centurion utters, certainly this man is the Son of God. The point is that these confessions work together to structure the gospel. And so when we see that uh, Peter confesses Christ, we are recognizing that for Mark, this is an essential, critical moment for us to grasp. It has immense gravity to the church, to all believers in all times. Geographically, we recognize a major hinge moment in this passage because up through the, uh, the, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus has been working his way around Galilee, which is the northern part of the area of Israel. And now in this passage, we see him taking a trip up to Caesarea Philippi, which is the northernmost place that uh, Jesus ever goes in the record of the gospels. It is even north of the territory of Israel. It is in an area that is... Um, essentially a Roman town, and we'll talk about that. But after Caesarea Philippi, the entire narrative turns 180 degrees and is headed uh, unstoppably, inexorably down to Jerusalem. So this is the hinge in Jesus' walking ministry. He has walked all the way up here, and then he literally turns around and heads towards Jerusalem. So what he has established up in Caesarea Philippi represents the culmination of the first half of his ministry and represents basically an underline for what he was seeking to accomplish before turning towards his mission of going to Jerusalem. I appreciate the, the commentary by William Lane. He, he makes this comment of our passage. He says that the recognition that Jesus is the Messiah is thus the point of intersection toward which all the theological currents of the first half of the gospel converge, and from which the dynamic of the second half of the gospel derives. So it is like we are going through the knothole. Everything that we must understand from the first half of the gospel is condensed right here. And everything that we will learn in the second half of the gospel springs from what we learn right here. So it calls for careful attention. More than that, this part of the gospel breaks what we call in, in, uh, in a story the fourth wall. Most stories deal with actions inside, with the characters inside the scene. But this passage, because Mark wants you to recognize its significance and importance, deliberately breaks the fourth wall where Jesus asks a question that you, the reader, must answer. He stops everything to say, but who do you say that I am? You are being addressed in this passage. The question, who do you say that I am, is not a question that only matters to the characters in the story. It matters most essentially to each and every one of us. Why? Listen to these words in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, 
I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This isn't just a question for Peter or the original apostles. Jesus is saying, whether or not you have truly acknowledged Jesus before men, whether or not you have truly confessed Jesus as the Christ, will determine how Jesus will receive you when you stand before him on the last day. He says, if you have acknowledged me, glad tidings, I acknowledge you before my Father in heaven, you will be welcomed in. But if your life adds up to a life that testifies against knowing Christ, testifies against confessing Christ, testifies to being ashamed of Christ, then the other half of that verse is true. Christ will be ashamed of you. And there will be no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So we recognize the the monumentalness, the weightiness of this question. We all must grasp it, we must grapple with it, and we must make ourselves certain that we have answered and truly know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so this passage is going to show us four things that are required for us to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Four things that we need to make sure are true about our confession of Christ to be sure that we know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Four things that will give us assurance that when we stand before Jesus in heaven at the judgment, that he will say, yes, you have acknowledged me here on earth, therefore I acknowledge you in heaven. All right? So let us now go through this passage and look at these four requirements for knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. The first requirement that that we must possess, the first thing that is required of knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior is this, sincere humility. Sincere humility. Let's look again at our passage, verses 14 and 15. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now this passage, I have to admit, is kind of hilarious. It's it's funny. It it makes you read it and chuckle. Because what has just happened in our passage, what did we just talk about last week? Week. What did Jesus do for 4,000 people with a couple loaves of bread? He's fed 4,000 people. And this is the second time that Jesus has done a miraculous feeding. He fed 5,000 in chapter 6. And so, what is so interesting, or what is going on? that the disciples are in this boat saying, oh my goodness, we're going on a journey and we don't have enough bread. What is going on? Now here they are thinking about bread. But Jesus wants them to, to focus on something much more consequential. And he makes this utterance, beware, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
This connects to just what just happened before they have gotten in the boat to head north. They, in all of this passage, they are headed north, north, north to Caesarea Philippi. So they had gotten in a boat in the south side of the Sea of Galilee, and they are headed to the north shore of Bethsaida and are going to continue north. But just before they got into the boat, we had this encounter with some of our favorite actors in the gospel. They were the Pharisees. And we recognized last week, as we looked at all these beautiful kingdom previews, all the, all the wonder and perfection that we can hope for in, in heaven, that the last thing that we see when we turn to the Pharisees is that there are some surprising absences. There are these Pharisees who have uh, tithed their mint and cumin, who have uh, uh, followed every jot and tittle of the law, but they have no relationship with Jesus. In fact, they are antagonists with Jesus. And because they do not come to Jesus with sincere humility, they do not come to Jesus with faith, but instead come to him with arguments and self-justification, we are told that there are righteous people who will not be counted in the kingdom of heaven, the Pharisees being exhibit A. It is not our righteousness, our accomplishment of the law, that will get us into the kingdom of heaven. And so it is because of that that Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples are aware of the great danger that the Pharisees and the people from Herod represent. And so he says in two imperatives, watch out, beware, pay careful attention. There is something in the Pharisees and Herod which you must be extra careful not to be infected with. He calls it the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is such an interesting uh, mental image. Essentially, it is like yeast, or yeast is a type of leaven. But it is something that you work into dough that by its very nature as an organism will permeate and go through every part of the dough to make it rise. Now, when you're making delicious bread, that's great. But if it's false teaching, if it's corruption, if it's poison, and it leavens, then it is great danger. And so Jesus is identifying the Pharisees and the people from Herod as bringing a something like leaven. That if you allow it to be kind of rubbed onto you or rubbed off onto you, that if you take just a few grains of it into your mind and allow that thinking to permeate and dissipate through all of your thinking and all of who you are, that it will leaven you and make you as corrupt and as sorry as the Pharisees. It is like a virus. You catch that virus and it multiplies and multiplies until the whole body is sick. So what is the leaven? What is the leaven that Jesus wants them to be aware of? Well, the most immediate thing in context is verse 11, where the Pharisees had come to Jesus demanding a sign. Show us a sign from heaven that you really are, the, that you really are somebody that we should be listening to. Now, that sign represented a substantial blindness from the Pharisees. 
Because just earlier, the Pharisees could have uh, been around Jesus to find that, the, that he was confessed as the one who does all things well, who makes even the uh, deaf and the mute speak. And yet, because they will not follow him, they will not watch him, they will not learn from him, and instead continue to demand him to perform according to their measures of righteousness, their measures of, of um, uh, authenticity, they will not accept the testimony that is in front of them. They have in front of them the one who does all things well. He is, he is the embodiment of God's goodness and Torah. His Old Testament righteousness is, is on display, all things well. And yet the Pharisees continue to look at him with arms crossed. I'm not sure about this fella. This guy doesn't really convince my standard of proof. And so they keep their distance. We see then that the, that the Pharisees have a judgmental attitude toward Jesus. They have a, uh, a, an attitude of prove it. They have an attitude of pride and deep self-righteousness. Who's judging who in this encounter? The Pharisees are measuring Jesus. The amount of pride involved in that is astounding. In the parallel passage, Luke says that the, the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? It is acting righteous, but in our heart, on the inside, what nobody can see is in fact far from God is in fact not submitted to God. Jesus said this in in Mark chapter 7, where he said, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So the leaven of the Pharisees is a hypocrisy. In Matthew 16, 12, when uh, Matthew interprets what the leaven is, he says that it is their teaching. And what is their teaching? Their teaching is works righteousness. If you want to be righteous, then you follow all of these laws, and then we'll add a couple more laws, and you follow all of those laws, and you are righteous. You will be righteous and approved by God by your works. So the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is a leaven of appearing righteous. It is a leaven of self-centered religiosity. It is a leaven of self-justification. It doesn't need Christ because it's pretty darn happy with who they are in and of themselves. That is the leaven of the Pharisees, pride. There is no humility. There is no fear of judgment. There is a smugness, a sense of righteousness in them. Is this a temptation for us? Is sincere humility natural? Do we just love saying the words, I'm wrong, I'm sorry? Will your uh, acquaintances and friends and family say, he was a person who would say, forgive me? You see, there is a desire deep inside of us to justify ourselves, to look at 10 other people and find ourselves in the top two or three and use that to justify that we are okay. 
Many of us have in our mind that God, if he is fair, is going to judge based on some sort of curve. And if I stay in the top third or fourth, I'm going to get through, just like I got through every math class. That's why I'm not an engineer anymore. (laughs) Uh, The curve does not really uh, account for knowledge. But that is not what we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is that the only people who come into the kingdom are those who possess poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so if we are standing in front of God, believing that we are fundamentally good people, and yeah, we might need a little bit of a break cut for ourselves, but we're good people, and how how could heaven be a heaven without me? I've done everything right. I've gone to church. I'm faithful. I know the right theology. If these are the things that we fall upon, if we are justifying ourselves that we are good people because of our income, because of the quality of our family, because of our faithfulness in giving, any one of those things is leaven that will keep you from recognizing your absolute abject bankruptcy before God where you bring absolutely nothing of worthiness into his kingdom because your heart, as we saw weeks ago, is a fountain of evil thoughts. It is impure and unrighteous to the core. So if we want to avoid the leaven of the, of the Pharisees, let us consider our heart next to this parable which Jesus gives us In the book of Luke, Luke 18, 9, Jesus says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Understand this that the message that you continue to want to latch on for your self-esteem and your pride, that you're a good person, you're okay, you're better than most, is the leaven of the Pharisees. And it is keeping you from the sincere humility of repenting and calling out to God for what you truly are, a sinner in desperate need of mercy. And yet, how many of our hearts still say, I'm not the tax collector, but you are. You are, and you need absolute mercy. 
justification by faith alone means we bring nothing. The only thing we bring to God is begging, have mercy on me. To, re- to, to recognize and know Jesus as Lord and Savior requires sincere humility. But here's the beautiful thing. You truly humble yourself. You truly come to God as you are, a sinner in need of grace, and you get grace. The tax collector went home justified, declared righteous, forgiven, accepted, welcomed. It is the Pharisee who continues to want to present himself in some manner of righteousness or better than thou that goes home condemned. Which do you want to be? To come to Jesus as Lord and Savior means you come to him with sincere humility. Second, knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior requires applied knowledge. Applied knowledge. And here we get into Jesus' discussion with the disciples who were worried about not having bread. Again, how comical is it that they are worried about bread? They are so worried about bread. Do you know that they don't even hear these words? Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Because what do they begin to talk about? They begin talking about the fact they don't have any bread. They didn't hear the warning at all. They are so consumed with their questions about daily bread that they didn't even hear the most important thing that Jesus just said. Jesus is astounded that they are confused about this. He asks eight questions just on top of each other. Bam, 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 bam. Eight questions. Do you get it? Listen to the passage again. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? Hey, guys, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you, did you pick up? Well, 12. And when I made for the 4,000 out of seven pieces, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Seven. Do you not yet understand? I mean, Jesus is asking these questions because is it not obvious There's no need to worry about bread. He is appealing to their thinking and understanding. What has gone on with the disciples is they have seen with their eye, but they haven't understood. They have heard, but they haven't listened. They haven't applied what they have seen Jesus do left and right, day and night, They have only been watchers. They have not applied that knowledge. What Jesus wants you to think about is you picked up that heavy uh, bag of bread and you knew it was made from a small, measly amount of bread. How do you not understand what's going on here? Because they have not applied the knowledge that they should have. They have not applied what they have seen and heard to understand. I loved a couple weeks ago when David gave the illustration of undercover boss and then he flipped it around and and took away the undercover and just imagine that the ceo is in the ceo office he invites people in and they do he does ceo stuff all day 
And then at the end of the day, he says, hey, I want to let you know a little secret. I'm the CEO. And all of the disciples are like, whoa. I love that. Because that's exactly what the gospel is about. Jesus is showing in every possible way, I am God's son. I am the, uh, the savior of the world. I am the Lord, the Christ. And they see it, but they do not understand it. We recognize the comedy, but the real question is, don't we know even more? Don't we know even more? I mean, we have been in the office of the CEO, and we even know his name is the CEO. And yet, there is something about that knowledge that we continue not to apply. How many of us fail to remember our faith in crisis? How many of us have been racked with worry about our finances or about our health just this last week? Have we forgotten to apply that the one who is in our hearts is the one in the boat that said to the sea and the storm, be quiet, be still, and it was? How how many of us say Jesus is Lord, but deliberately refuse to apply his lordship to our sex life, to our desires, to our money, to our free time. We refuse to apply what we know to what he is Lord of. I remember in my youth, and I speak to the, to the younger people in this room, as a person who was raised in a Christian home, my question as, as I became more and more uh, an adolescent was not, how do I apply the lordship of God to the purity of my heart and the purity of my life as a man, as a male, but how far, how far can I go with this girl or that girl? before I actually get in trouble. Is that applying the lordship of Christ? Paul tells us that we are to flee from sexual immorality. And yet most of us try and apply the lordship of Christ to this narrow bandwidth of adultery or fornication. And we want to define all sorts of pleasures and recreations that are not inside of that narrow band. Is that the lordship of Christ? that you are applying, or is that the lordship of Christ that you are denying? There are many other ways that we could talk about this. What about spiritual growth? Ephesians 4.14 tells us this, that we are to grow in our knowledge so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You see, what, is, what, what Paul is saying is as, as we apply the knowledge of the gospel, we apply the knowledge of, of, of what we believe, we will become people who mature, who are not like children, who are not tossed to and fro by our emotions, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, not tossed to and fro by false teaching. 
That's what happens when we apply and apply and apply the knowledge of the gospel. And yet how many of us have confessed the gospel for years and decades and are still tossed to and fro? Not really showing much traction in spiritual growth. You see, it's about applying the knowledge Jesus is Lord that must happen. What about Christ-likeness? Certainly, as we apply the gospel, Christ-likeness should be growing. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you know what that means? As you get old and your body gets creakier and diseases start happening and life is just more difficult and crummy in some perspectives, Paul is saying if the gospel is rich in you, that what really shines forth is a hope and a peace and a joy and a beauty that has learned that even as my body wastes away, the part of my body that is eternal is being renewed day by day. It is why elders are so important in the church. And by elders, I mean elderly. Because you should be able to look at the people that have walked four and five decades with the Lord and have had all sorts of tragedies come their way. But then what you really see in them is a contentedness and a calmness and a pleasantness because they are walking with the Lord. And that's becoming more and more dominant in who they are, not their circumstances. Why? Because they are applying the knowledge Jesus is Lord to all the different circumstances of their life. And so instead of panic, you see the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of fear, you see peace. It's a beautiful thing. We must recognize this is very key. The gospel is not just knowledge. It is not just that you can say the words, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior. It is knowledge that has to be applied into your life. It has to be applied to your heart. Listen to the Apostle John in chapter 2, verse 4 of his first letter. He says this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord requires applied knowledge. Third, we've seen that knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord requires sincere humility and applied knowledge. Third, we must recognize it also requires divine intervention. Divine intervention. So as they are moving their way north to Caesarea Philippi, they've got out of the boat, they pass through this town, Bethsaida. A blind person comes to them to be healed. And Jesus, of course, shows compassion on this blind person and heals them. It is another picture of the kingdom of God coming Remember Isaiah 35, 5 last week that talked about the the deaf receiving hearing. Also the blind receive their sight. And so here Jesus is showing once again the CEO in the office to his disciples. I heal blind people. The only person that can heal blind people is the Messiah. 
Can you see? Can you understand? And all of that is beautiful, and if the sermon were on that alone, we'd spend more time there. But there is something deeper that I want us to see in this passage of the healing of the blind person. First of all, we have to recognize something peculiar about this healing. It's unique to all of Jesus' healings in all of the Gospels. The first healing only worked halfway. Jesus has to touch the guy two times. Why is Jesus having to touch the blind guy twice? Is it because Jesus is weak? Did, did the journey take something out of him? Did he just not quite have it that day? Did he just botched it the first time? I think it's important to understand what is going on with this passage, that we remember uh, what was said in verse 21 to the disciples. Jesus says, do you not yet understand? See, as, as Jesus was talking to his disciples, he recognized their condition now, but he leaves a small hint, a small promise, a small hope that they will understand. They don't yet understand, but they may, in fact, understand in a little while. And so, as we have just seen, do you not yet understand Mark bringing into the presence of Jesus a blind person who needs to be healed of sight? I believe that we are supposed to read the healing of the blind person with physical blindness in view of the spiritual blindness of the disciples. The, the, the healing that is happening here is to be illustrative. It is to be like a parable for the disciples to recognize what is going on with their own understanding. You see, the disciples are about to understand more clearly than they have in the past, but yet not completely clearly, like the first touch. But what is going to help them see clearly is going to be the fact that they will be spiritually healed in their sight. And so what is going on in this passage is that this physical healing of blindness is paralleling a spiritual healing of blindness that the, Jesus is doing with his disciples. You can see this made explicit if you look at the parallel account of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 16. These words in Matthew are not included in Mark. Mark instead tells the story of the healing of a blind man. But I believe the healing of a blind man fills in uh, the detail that Matthew puts in uh, the words of Jesus. So Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the confession. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, this big moment of confession that happens at the end of our passage is something Jesus says the Father revealed, the Father awakened and cured your spiritual blindness so that you could know that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark doesn't use those words. He decides instead to use a picture of this blindness being healed to show us that what Jesus is doing with physical blindness, he is also doing with the disciples and their spiritual blindness. You see, knowing that Jesus is Savior and Lord is not just an act of the will. It is a gift of God. Just like this blind person needed the touch of Jesus to see, we need the touch of Jesus to know him. That is, I know, astounding to think about. But God must intervene for us just to see the gospel. 
If you go to the book of Acts, chapter 26, verse 18, we read these words. Jesus sent the apostle Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, before we can even know the gospel rightly, we must first be cured of our spiritual blindness that just can't see our need for the gospel. And so before we can even respond to the gospel, our spiritual eyes must be opened. We must be cured of a spiritual blindness. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, let alone believe in it, let alone enter into it. He cannot see. There must be an act, a supernatural intervention, a, a making him born again that must precede his ability to see. And so what is happening in the gospel of Mark here by doing a physical healing is a demonstration that the same thing must happen spiritually for us to understand. So note this. He is not healing the blind man here in this passage merely so that we are amazed. He is healing this person so that we can recognize our spiritual condition. We are the blind person. We cannot see without God's help. We cannot understand without God's help. There is no pride that we can possibly bring to taking on the gospel because we even need him to bring us to see it. We see by God's grace, even the seeing, even the hearing is a gift. So if you are here perhaps struggling with with seeing the gospel, with hearing the gospel, with believing the gospel, if I've convicted your heart, or if the Spirit, I should say, has convicted your heart about the applied knowledge, about your humility, and you're like, I don't want that to be true. I want this sincere knowing. I want to truly recognize and receive Jesus. But you're telling me that I'm, I'm blind and I can't do it. What, what, what then can I do? You must ask for mercy. It is told to us in, in Luke 11, 9 through 13, here is your hope. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be opened. It will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Lord Jesus, I don't even know how to know you. I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. Open my eyes. Draw me to you. Give me a right understanding. I beg you, show mercy on me, a sinner. He is a perfect heavenly father. He will reward your asking and seeking and knocking with the Holy Spirit. Fourth, Fourth, knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior requires sincere humility, requires applied knowledge, it requires divine intervention. And fourth, 
It requires personal faith. It requires personal faith. So Jesus has now brought them all the way up to this town called Caesarea Philippi. It's a pagan town. It's full of all kinds of pagan worship. He doesn't actually go into the town. He's just in the area, the region. But as I think it's important to recognize it's called Caesarea Philippi. It's the town of Caesar given by Philip. That's basically what it means. Caesar's town given by Philip. Philip is uh, the King, King Herod Philip. It's interesting that Jesus brings them up to Caesarea Philippi, the place where Caesar is declared as Lord in the name of the town to establish that the true Lord of the world is Jesus. It is the Christ, not Herod Philip, not Caesar. Christ is Lord and Savior. This is the hinge point. They're at the northernmost part of their journey. From this moment on, they will turn and begin heading to Jerusalem where the mission of the Messiah to give his life as a ransom for many begins in earnest. And at this place, Jesus asks two questions. He says, who do people say that I am? What's the chatter out there? What's the gossip? Who do people say that I am? Well, they, they give a couple answers. All of them add up to some kind of prophet. You're, you're, you're some kind of prophet, Jesus. That's what people think you are. And that is certainly true. Jesus does speak the word of God. He does prophetic things. But it's not complete. It's not complete knowledge. It does not truly identify who he is. And so he turns now to the disciples. And we remember that just ahead, they could not even make sense of Jesus taking care of their bread problem. They had no understanding. But we were told Do you not yet understand? After we've gone through this healing miracle of blindness, Jesus now turns to Peter and says, Who do you say that I am? And it's at that point that Peter says, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You see, finally he is able to see spiritually what he was blind to just verses earlier. You are the Christ. That is a gift given to him by the Heavenly Father, as Matthew tells us. But here is the the thing for us. We must recognize that the question, who do people say that I am, will not get you into heaven. You must answer the question, who do you say that I am? Being near belief is not enough. Being with believers is not enough. Growing up in a family of believers is not enough. Looking really good like other believers is not enough. This is urgent. You must answer the question. The fourth wall is broken down. Who do you say that I am? Do you confess him as Christ with sincere humility, applying that knowledge to the wholeness of your life? Do you recognize your absolute dependence upon divine intervention and mercy to know him do you exercise your faith in response to that this is urgent go back to john chapter 3 verses 16 and we're going to read to verse 18 for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There are two choices. You believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Truly believe in him as we've talked about in this passage. You are saved. You are no longer condemned. But if you do not believe in him, then you are condemned already. There is no second path. There is no second way. There is no second Messiah. There is no circumvention. You either confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life, or you accept the condemnation of your sins. It's sober. But praise God, it's simple. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him with your heart. And you will be saved. This is the hinge point, not just of the gospel of Mark. It is the hinge point of your life. Your life is going to head towards hell or it's going to head towards heaven. And the hinge is what you do with this question. Who do you say that I am? If you truly believe and confess him as Lord and Savior, you are saved. You are his. But if you choose to try and find some other way, some less humbling thing to do, some other way to find self-justification, you will not be acknowledged by him on the last day. Is your life answering the question, yes, I believe he is my Lord and Savior. Is your life conforming to your confession that Jesus is Lord? Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.